and um, we're not going to do neighboring because I just we just found out yesterday that he wasn't going to be here, so I'm kind of improvising. So we're going to go a completely different direction. So just bear with me. You have no handouts because it's impromptu. So let's go to the Lord for help. God, we thank you. You are good, Lord. You have done many wondrous deeds for your people, O oh Lord. And God, we pray that you would bring them to the top of our mind this morning. Cause us to remember all the good things that you have done to secure our salvation in Christ. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that it was your design to write down everything that you've done in history to save us, God, so that we would be reminded of your redemption, of the fact that you are a mighty God and that nothing is outside of your purview. God, we pray that you would press these truths upon our heart, cause us to, to believe them and to live in light of them, O oh Lord. Help us, God, by the aid of your spirit to believe all that you have said. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as you know, uh, Wally and um, Matthew were doing neighboring. I think, yeah, they were on, what, session five or some four or something like that? Three? I don't know. It's a number. <laughs> and um, so Matthew's sick and Wally's out of town. So um, we're going to go ahead and just do, given the fact that it's Christmas, getting close to Christmas, I'm going to do uh, something about Christmas. Amen? So <laughs> turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. All right, I'm going to talk about what the genealogy of Matthew has to do with Christmas, okay? So generally, typically when we do a lot of, uh, um, you know, during Christmas services or programs, you hear a lot of Bible verses, they, get, they become customary to us, and a lot of times you'll hear these genealogies, you hear the stories about, the stories about Jesus' birth, and a lot of times these genealogies, just we don't really understand what they mean, why they're in the scriptures, why they're important. So I kind of just want to go over this one in particular. We're not going to cover all of them for time's sake, but we will deal with this one in Matthew. So I'll read it. We're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Ruth, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rohoboam. And Rohoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of jo Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconoah, <coughs> Jeconoah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconoah was the father of, she of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of, the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, 
and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was, um, I'm sorry, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So each of the four Gospels begin differently, right? So Matthew begins with Jesus' family tree. And Mark begins with a brief introduction followed by an account of John the Baptist's ministry. Luke begins with the details of the Christmas story, focusing on Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and to Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus. And then John's gospel starts with a more theological introduction about the word becoming flesh and eventually getting to the point where it says it dwells among us. So both Matthew and Luke included genealogies, okay? They, Matthew and Luke include genealogies. <clears throat> uh, yeah, Matthew and Luke include genealogies of Jesus, but Luke did not include a genealogy until after Jesus's baptism because he's trying to emphasize something different there in Luke, right? So if you go read Luke's, uh, if you go read the book of Luke, you get, by the time you get to the genealogy, so they do the genealogy, and the very next thing you see is Jesus being driven out by the Spirit, because what he's emphasizing is in Luke there is, is that Jesus is the second Adam. So that genealogy is laying out something very specific that they're trying to point you to the fact, like, this is the second Adam, and this Adam is here to undo what the first Adam did. So that's the emphasis in Luke. The emphasis here in Matthew is different, okay? So in, in, in this gospel, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is a real person from a real family who came to bring real grace, rest, and jubilee for all those who follow him and put their trust in him. So um, among the people in this particular genealogy, Jesus' family tree, are what some people have called, you hear historically people, they talk about the heroes of the faith or the hall of faith, um, such as Abraham, Ruth, and David. But what's interesting in this genealogy is, is that there are also people who would been, have been considered cultural outsiders. And some people that just did some very wicked, evil things, to be, to be quite honest with you, right? Uh, many of those, many of the people listed here in, gene, in this genealogy in Matthew would not have been legally qualified to even be in the temple. And yet we see them here in, ge in the genealogy of our Savior, right? So um, what does that tell us then? That it tells us that Jesus, in a way, one of the things that Jesus came to do is he came to, to basically turn upside down what our value system is to help us see the world in a completely different light. What we see as good and right and valuable and worthy, he views differently, right? It's like 1 Corinthians says, not many of you were noble in the world's eyes, not many of you were strong or wise in the world's eyes, and God in Christ came and turned those things upside down, right? What is glorious in the gospel is, is the, it, the gospel completely changes the way that you and I should be viewing the world, right? It was, it was at the death of Jesus Christ that God was doing the most winning. So we see death, we see failure, we see a man dying on a cross, and what is actually happening is victory, Amen. right? So the cross of Jesus Christ turns upside down how we see everything. You have to lose your life in order to gain it, right? Death brings life. The best thing that you, it's better to give than it is to receive. All of these things are, re, this, the whole concept of what Christ was doing there on the cross reframes how we should be viewing the world. And it also, what it also does is, is that people, it should change the way we view people and what God deems as what, how we should value who's good and who's bad. Amen? So, that being said, 
Jesus brought grace, and in Christ, both the priest and the prostitute can sit together at the marriage supper of the Lamb as equals. You understand that? He turns this, he turns this, this whole uh, hierarchy of people upside down now, right? The priest is no better than the prostitute in Christ. There is no, that's what, when we read the scriptures, that's the, some of the things that we should be seeing, that in Christ, that stuff, it's a level playing field because we're all on the same, we're all are in the same boat as it relates to righteousness, and it's only by the righteousness of Christ that we can stand before God as justified. So your religious performance or, or this person's lack of religious performance is not what qualifies you to sup with the, with the lamb. Amen? It is the righteousness of Christ that makes us justified before God. And that's what these verses, these, some of these people will get through that and you'll start to see that these people aren't the most righteous people in the world. These are not people that you would want your daughter or sons to marry. And these are not people that you would probably have sitting at your house on Thanksgiving dinner. Right? But yet, nevertheless, they are in the genealogy of our blessed Savior. That's wonderful that God is gracious like that to sinners. Amen? All right, so the beginning of the genealogy, you see, it actually starts at, so in verse 1, you see these titles, and then in verse 2 to 17 is the beginning of the actual genealogy, all right? And then, um, so the gene, I'll get to this, so, but just, just bear with me. So verse 2 says, um, I'm sorry, verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's fitting that in the very first verse of the book of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is identified as the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. So these few words, they sum up the entire Old Testament, right? And in them are the seeds from which all of redemptive history will grow. This is the, the, the book of Matthew, the central message of the book of Matthew, or rather his purpose for writing this entire book is for you to know that the long-awaited promised Messiah, the restorer of God's kingdom, and the redeemer of of God's people is the man Jesus of Nazareth. This historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, this man, Mary's boy, is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. That's the entire purpose of G uh, Matthew's writing this letter. So in his very first verse, Matthew's making this extraordinary claim. Had you been a first century Jew, he's making an extraordinary claim here. He says, at the time when he was writing, many Jewish readers would have been extremely skeptical about the idea that the man Jesus of Nazareth was indeed this promised Davidic king, the Messiah. Right? So after all, he was merely, he was just a carpenter from a little backwater town like Perunk. Right? But they wanted a king just like other worldly kings, a king who was politically connected, militarily powerful, and very charismatic. And they wanted a king like that with all of the accompanying uh, grandeur and pomp and circumstances and credentials. So they didn't want a king, the kind of king that God was trying to give them. They wanted Saul. Right? They wanted tall, dark, and handsome, and God has given you a savior. Amen? So this is what is going on here. So when you claim that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the son of David, the Christ, the Messiah, he has to prove this. You can't just, you can't just say something like that, right? And so Jesus, he has all the right credentials, but he doesn't have all of the, the flash and the pomp that they were looking for. So at, as exhibit A, to validate Jesus' claim to the throne, 
Matthew, what he does is he presents Jesus' bloodline as evidence or as proof that he is, in fact, the Messiah. That makes sense to you? Okay? So what he's doing here is, is that he's linking Jesus by blood to both Abraham and David, right? So because the promised Christ must descend from both of these historical figures, so the Messiah has to be both Abraham's son and he has to be David's son because of all of the promises that were laid out in the Old Testament. So the documentation of Jesus' lineage is critically important. It matters. It absolutely matters who is in Jesus' lineage. It absolutely matters, right? So when it comes to kings, people always want to know just where they come from, what their family line is. So these 17 verses may seem a little boring when you read them. The names might be hard to pronounce, but they are not to Matthew's audience. They are not only to Matthew's audience. They're also to us so that we would know that we have, in fact, the man, Jesus, that we worship is, in fact, Messiah. He is, in fact, the Messiah that God has promised in all of the Old Testament, right? So hopefully by the end of this lesson, you'll see why this is not boring. These genealogies are not boring, that they're interesting, even with this, these hard-to-pronounce and odd list of names. So this family tree is more than just a literary placeholder. I hope I'm being clear there. It has a very practical purpose. A person in the first century would not have been walking around with a copy of the Bible like we do. We got physical Bibles. We got the Bible on our app. We can pull up the Bible anytime we want. So they wouldn't have been walking around with a Bible like this. So they would have had to rely on oral history and memory. So Matthew, what he does is he traces Christ's genealogy And it's in three sets of 14 generations, right? Three sets of 14 generations, and they're broken down like this. The first set is the first 14 generations before the monarchy, before the monarchy. The second is during the monarchy. And the third is after the fall of the monarchy when they were exiled to Babylon. So they're broken up in those three sets to make your you know, to make it easy to kind of remember if you're trying to memorize this this line. And Matthew does not, he does not mention every single ancestor, okay? He does not mention every single ancestor, okay? But he, what he does is he traced the generations in a systematic, memorable way so that you can remember the highlights, Okay? So if the reader, if you wanted more detail, then if you want more details, you obviously got to go to the Old Testament scriptures and get the, to fill in the blanks. But, Jesus, but Matthew's undeniable point was that Jesus of Nazareth is the legal heir, is David's legal heir to the throne of Israel, and that the king of glory is on the scene. This is who Jesus is. He's making this point. So note one more memorable fact when looking at this genealogy is, is that um, in the course of tracing out the generations, Matthew, he, he adds a few names in here that would have surprised most people reading their Bibles. We're reading it in hindsight so they don't surprise us as much. But nevertheless, other readers would have considered some of these names downright scandalous to have them in this list, okay? He included... Four women in the lineage, which is out of the ordinary, right? From the beginning of the gospel, Matthew is used indisputable documentation to show that even women and Gentiles are included prominently in the kingdom of God, right? Prominently in the kingdom of God. So there's not, there is this idea that I don't think is actually articulated well where the Jews are God's chosen people, that is true. But when you read the Old Testament, you see it's all kind of Gentiles being brought in. It's all kind of people that would have been considered unclean 
and unable to go into the temple that were added into God's covenant people. And you see that same thing here in in this genealogy. So if you look at verse 3, it says here, so normally when you read these geneal- when you read this particular genealogy, it's very rhythmic. You kind of start getting into this flow. This Judah is the father of this person, and David is the father, of this, and then you start seeing these these odd, like out of the out of the ordinary insertions here, right? So the first one you see is in verse three. It says, "And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar." Okay. Now, Tamar, I don't, does anybody know the story? This is Genesis 38. Who does not know this story? Genesis 38. You don't know the story. Okay. This sounds like a Jerry Springer episode. Right? It's craziness. It's absolute craziness. So, uh, just to be brief, you have in Genesis in this part of the Bible, you have, it's they're going over the history of Joseph, right, what Joseph has done. And then just out of nowhere, in, ver- in chapter 38, they start talking about his brother Judah and his wives and his children. And Judah had some sons, and one of, um, one of his sons married this woman, Tamar. He dies because he's an evil guy. Then the brother-in-law is supposed to give her a child so that the lineage would carry on. And, and he doesn't do it because he sinfully do- refuses to um, impregnate the woman. And then the Lord puts him to death. And then eventually all the sons are dead. The only person left at this point is Judah. I mean, I'm sorry, the, little, the, the youngest brother. The youngest brother, but he's too young to marry. Judah doesn't want him to marry the, 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 this, his daughter-in-law. So he pushes it off and prolongs it. Then he goes off and, and to uh, a house of ill repute. You following me? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, he goes, to, he goes to a house of ill repute, sleeps with what he thinks is a prostitute, but it's really his daughter-in-law veiling her face, tricking him so that, he could, so, that she, so that he could do the honorable thing and make sure that the lineage is being carried on. And then he finds, the, the father, find, or Judah finds out that she's pregnant and immediately goes, this is my chance, we can put her to death now. All right? But she, he didn't have money to pay, so he left his signet ring with her, and then when they were going to stone her to death, they wanted to know who the man was, and he goes, you're the man. It's you. Right? So this is one of the instances where this is in the lineage of Christ. Judah, if you remember, if you know your Bibles, that's one of the titles of Christ. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the story is just like inserted in the middle of Joseph's story, Because you need to be reminded of this is the line, this is the seed, this is the lineage of Jesus Christ. And this is how God ensured that that lineage carried on through this kind of a situation. None of this is clean. None of this is pristine and clean. This is crazy. Right? And so this is why when you read this, if you would have been a first century Jew and you would have read this, and you're waiting for this glorious Messiah to show up, and then you got the disciples standing up saying, Tamar is in the lineage? No. No. Yes, sir. I'm going to get into all of that. The answer to your question is yes. So, <clears throat> so what you see here is, is that um, God 
in his providence, is using even the most wickedest, sinful situations. And they do not have the ability nor the power to stop God's plan to save his people and to ensure that his Messiah, to ensure, and to ensure that his Messiah would fulfill the promises that God has made. Amen? Also, look at verse 5. Verse 5. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Okay? So, I'm going to read this to you. This is Joshua. This is the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And David was the father, I'm sorry, yeah, and, and they lodged there. Okay, so that's where, that's where um, you see first Rahab's name first in the story of, of the Bible. Now, she's clearly a prostitute, right, the Bible says. So you have to, like, use your imagination here and fill in some blanks, right? So in this story, she says to these two spies, we have heard about all the, 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 the wonderful, mighty deeds that your God has done, right? Where, have she, where would she have heard these? The other men who are traveling and coming to her venue. So she's hearing about God in, in the most unscrupulous type of place that you could be in. And she's brought to some semblance of faith just by hearing about all the wonderful things that God has done. And then, and then becomes, then becomes the line, in the lineage of the Savior, right? This Gentile prostitute who would not have even been allowed to walk in a temple is now seen square dead in the middle of the lineage. You would not have a savior right now had it not been for this woman. So all over the scriptures you see grace, you see mercy, you see kindness from God, and to the most unqualified people, even in the Old Testament, right? It's a lie. Don't let any dispensational person ever tell you that people are saved differently in the Old Testament. It's a lie. Right? It's the grace of God. Old Testament, New Testament, it's the grace of God. God is gracious to the most unworthy kind of people. All right? Then you see in verse 6, you see, in Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, right, by the wife of Uriah. Now, right then, that ought to tell you something. That's Bathsheba, by the way. Bathsheba is the father, is the, um, the mother of Solomon, right? So let me read this to you. This is 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, and it says the following. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Whenever he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. By my steadfast but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So during the time of Jesus, the Jews 
use this expression, the son of David, as a, as a messianic title, right? They understood this to be a messianic title. So in the genealogy here that we have in Matthew, he's stressing that Jesus is the son of David, right? And he shows that. So the Jews knew that the Messiah or the Christ would be a, a direct blood descendant of King David, but when we look here in verse 6 in this genealogy of Matthew, they make sure that you understand that Solomon, David's son, the one who actually builds this temple for, because like, in 2 Samuel uh, 7.13 it says is that, so 2 Samuel is the, is, the, is the promise of the, I'm sorry, let me just deviate for a second. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this promise that God's making, all right, to David, and so um, you could say that it has a twofold, it's like a two-part fulfillment. There's this long-range and short-range fulfillment of this, of this promise that, God's made, that God makes, all right? So David doesn't actually build a temple, but David's son actually does build a temple, and that, that son is Solomon, right? And his mother is Bathsheba. Now, you know the story of David. In Bathsheba, it's ugly, it's murder, it's adultery, it's pure wickedness, right? And what God does is he takes that story, he takes that entire situation, he redeems it, and from that situation comes Solomon, who some could, you could argue, you could make the argument that he was the greatest king that Israel had, okay? Right up there with David, okay? And from that situation, you have probably Israel's greatest king. He builds the temple, and the genealogy of our Lord and Savior is carried on through probably one of the most wickedest, ugliest situations in the entire Bible. Don't tell me God's not gracious. God can redeem anything. He uses all kind of sin, all kind of ugliness, and all kind of wickedness to his advantage to secure salvation for his people. Do not ever think that our Father in heaven is not gracious. He's gracious. So the wife, and it's interesting what he says here. He says he calls her the wife of Uriah. So that when you, you're supposed to read that and go, wait a minute. Hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. David, so Solomon is the is the is the <laughs> the son of somebody else like you're supposed to read that and find out wait a minute I got to go find out what happened here right so in in David he he commits adultery with her he murders her husband to cover up the adultery David and Bathsheba eventually end up marrying and she gives birth to Solomon. Again, we see another scandalous story in the genealogy of the Savior. And all of this simply points to how marvelously gracious God is to save sinners. Amen? Then look at verse 16 in Matthew. We're still in Matthew, verse 16. It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Okay? So th this is near the end of the genealogy. He mentions Joseph. And the, but the wording of this verse is trying to emphasize that Joseph, it's, it emphasizes, okay, it's it wants to emphasize Joseph's relationship to Mary. While at the same time, like highlighting the idea that Joseph is not his actual father, okay? So, because Mary's the one that's actually more, they're trying to place more emphasis on in this, in this genealogy here, right? So if you go back to the beginning of this genealogy in verse 1, where it says, the book, of, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, Everything about that is absolutely fascinating and incredible, right? His name, Jesus, means, it, mean, it comes from Hebrew, 
the Hebrew uh, name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Okay? That's his first name. Yahweh saves is what you should be thinking when every time you read that name. Jesus is the, uh, how we pronounce the Greek equivalent of that name. His name is Joshua. Yahweh saves. That's his name. Okay? And there were many Jewish boys with that name, but you see right behind that, you see Christ. Now, that's not his last name. My last name is Williams. His last name is not Christ. Christ is what he is. That's his title. Okay? That's his title. And Christ means anointed. It's the Greek equivalent of Messiah. So he is Jesus the Messiah. Right? He is Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus is his human name. Christ is his official title. Right? And then you see the title Son of David, which is just as important. Like we read earlier, God swore a covenant to David that he would establish his throne forever. Right? And he promised that one of his immediate blood descendants would establish this kingdom. And that David's kingdom would endure for all of eternity. Right? All of eternity. And then he says, he's the son of Abraham. So the covenant that God made with the Jewish people, he made first and foremost with Abraham. Right? And you see that in Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. I don't have time to, to get into that, but... In Genesis 22:18, you see God had made this promise that Abraham's offspring would bless all of the nations. All of the nations would be blessed through this offspring. Right? And so what you see here in, in Matthew is you see he's making this claim at the very beginning. Okay? This man, Jesus, he's the anointed one. He's the son, the long-awaited son of David. He's God's savior. He's the promised son of David. He's the king who would establish the throne of Israel for all of eternity. The government would be on his shoulders, right? He's the son of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is an absolutely amazing claim that he's making in the very first verse of this book. He just comes right out at the very beginning, guns, guns blazing. This is who this is. And then he just starts with the genealogy. So, what's the big deal? Why is this family tree so important? Right? So, first and foremost, genealogies are just important to the, to, you know, the Jewish people. And without them, you couldn't prove uh, tribal, that you, what, what tribe you belong to what tribe you were a member of, which also led to, you know, your, your rights of inheritance. So anyone claiming to be the son of David, anyone claiming to be the son of Abraham would have most certainly had to prove it because, like I said, it's tied to this, to this bloodline. That's one of the reasons why this genealogy is so important. And secondly, while the Bible, let me say it like this, um, many of us when we read the Bible, we skip over the genealogies, if we're being honest. Amen? Some of us do. Some of us do. Because they are hard to pronounce. We don't know the story. And so we just skip over them and we want to get to the good stuff. Right? Some of us do that. Some of us don't. Like, to be fair, some people read the whole Bible, but some people don't. Okay? But I just want to encourage you that this genealogy, this list of names, is vitally important to the gospel record. You need to know these names. These names are important. It shows us that Jesus Christ is a part of actual human history, right? And that all of human history prepared the way for the birth of our Savior. Do you understand? God in his providence, he rules and he reigns over history to accomplish his great purpose in bringing his son into the world and securing our salvation. There is not a single part 
a single part of the timeline that our God is not king over. Now, that should give you some confidence and some hope. Every time you pray, every time you pray, you're praying to a God who can actually do things in the world. You know what I mean? He's just not a concept that's detached and up away from us that cannot affect human history. This is why we pray for our loved ones. You know why we pray for our loved ones? Because we have a God in heaven who can change the hearts of kings. Amen? This is why these things are important. You need to know that you have a God who actually can move men. You understand? He can actually sway hearts. He can actually do things in real life. This is just not some ethereal, uh, feel-good thing that's going on in your head. He's actually real, and he actually, all of human history and in his, is in his hand, and there was nothing outside of his purview. Nothing. So when we quote Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those that love Christ Jesus and call according for his purpose, it, because you have a God who actually runs human history and his hand is on the timeline, when you think about Romans 8, 28, you can actually believe it. It's just not a motivational poster. It's actually true. It's actually, it's real. And he knew Every wicked, evil thing that happened to you, he knew exactly what he was doing with it. But if you don't know and don't understand that God is in complete control of all human history, if you don't believe that, if you don't have that firmly in your mind and drilled deep down in your heart, when all of these problems and stresses and persecution and tribulations comes, you're going to start to question, why is this happening? God knows. None of this is a secret to him. Nothing that's ever happening to you, every illness, every death, every wicked, evil thing that ever happened to you, God knew exactly what he was doing with it long before it ever happened to you. So it's important when we see historical moments in the scriptures like this to know that you have a God in heaven who is deeply, deeply concerned for you. He knows exactly what he's doing. And none of this is escaping his purview. So that I can stand up and say, when these things are happening, I can say, Lord, I don't like the way this is going. But you are good, you are wise, and you are using this for your glory and my good, and you can actually believe it. Because you have a God who controls in, in all of history. From the kings on the top of the hill to the little man sitting down, the little plumber. He's controlling everything. Amen? And you can have complete and utter confidence that even in this wickedness, that God is doing something good. But you got to believe that he runs history. You have to believe that, okay? When you get these ridiculous dudes going around calling themselves Christians, right, and they start lying to you about, well, maybe the Bible's not really talking about history and it's just fairy tales. Just ignore everything that they say and pray for their souls, okay? Third thing, this genealogy also illustrates so the first thing was the genealogy is proving that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing, reason why it's important is because, like I just said, you have a God who runs history. You can have confidence in this God. Okay? The third thing is, is that this genealogy illustrates just how wonderful, once again, and how gracious God is, right? It is most unusual to find women in the names of these genealogies. And part of the reason is because inheritances go through the father. 
So you want to know who's the father. That's why when you see most of these genealogies, you want to, who's the, who's the father? That's who the, the firstborn son is the one who's getting the inheritance. So that's why, you know, you typically see the men. So the, the fact that they have these women so prominently in these, in these genealogies and the, the situation surrounding these women are like so scandalous. Everybody involved in this, is, it's just utter scandalousness, right? And so, but in this list, you find the references to four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. You see Gentiles, prostitutes, you see uh, adultery, you see murder, you see all of this. God is gracious, family. God is gracious. God, none of that, none of that could stop God from saving his people. So I come, I used to go to a Pentecostal church, and they would say this all the time, and it's a complete lie from the pit. Okay? This is what they would say. That if you do, t- if you got to make sure you know, that you're being perfectly obedient. Because if you do too much sin and you don't do the right thing, it'll stop God from doing what he needs to do. That's from the pit. Now, I just want to say unequivocally, if you hear that and you decide, I can go sin now, you don't know Jesus. Okay? If you hear that and that, I just got the green light to do a bunch of sinning, we need to have a conversation. You're probably not a Christian. Okay? I just want to be 100% clear about that. But there is nothing that man can do to stop God's plan. Nothing at all. Your neighbor can decide tomorrow to act a complete fool. Right? President Biden can tomorrow decide to act a complete fool. And none of that, none of that is going to stop God's plan. None of that's going to prevent him from building his church. None of that's going to prevent him from calling his people to himself. And none of that ever is going to stop him from loving and blessing his people according to his purposes and his promises. Amen. Amen. The church, listen to me, the church is invincible. It's invincible. That's it. It is absolutely invincible. And it is full of people who are sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ. Listen to me. The person sitting next to you is the greatest sinner that they know. You understand that? Do you understand that? So we just really got to stop playing this game, right? God is not saving you and not saving his church because we're these pristine, perfect people. That's not why he's doing that. He's doing it because of his son. The blood of his son has redeemed us, and the reason that that even happened is because the father loved you in eternity and sent his son to redeem and he will not fail. He will not fail. He can sway the hearts of kings. He runs all of human history. None of this is taking him by surprise. If your man didn't win the election, that's because God didn't want him to. Amen? I don't care who's the president. I don't care who's the mayor. I don't care who's your neighbor. I don't care who is your spouse. None of that is going to stop anything God has for his covenant people. Amen? And so you see this here in this genealogy. Our God is gracious. Our God is kind. These, none of these people here, some of these people here, were, like I said, they wouldn't, have been, they wouldn't have been allowed to even go into the temple. They were officially disqualified from going into the temple from, for various reasons. But you and I are going to sup with these people at the marriage supper of the Lamb because they are in Christ. Amen? So God qualifies these people by the blood of Christ, not because they're good, but because he's good. So the birth of Jesus in Matthew 
in this, in this um, genealogy, Matthew's chief aim in putting his genealogy, he puts it before the birth of Christ. Namely, the reason he does it before the birth of Christ is to show that the child that's going to be born here is, da- is the son of David. So when you start reading this story, you should be like, oh, this is, this is the son of David. This is the son of Abraham. This is the, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. The child to be born here, he wants you to know that this child to be born is the child of fulfillment. It's the child of the promise. And that the child will grow to be a man to bring God's grace to God's people through his death, burial, and resurrection. So I pray that when you read the, re- the genealogies in the future, that, that when you read these and you read them according to their intended purpose, that is to show that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the long-awaited Messiah. He's come to bring us grace from God and to save his way with people. Amen, church? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are so good and you're so kind and you're so gracious, oh Lord. I pray that during this Christmas season that we don't take our eyes off of you, God, that we remember that you had your hand on all of human history to ensure that this virgin ended up in Bethlehem so that we would have a savior today, oh God. So help us to remember those things, God, as we celebrate the Christmas season that we don't forget that you are good. You sent us a savior in spite of our sin, oh God. Help us to focus our mind and enjoy the many good gifts that you give us, but also remember at the same time that they're only possible because of the blood and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. Help us by the aid of your spirit to believe these things. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.